Welcome, I'm Pastor Abraham, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Sun Valley Podcast. You can check out our church on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for worship thoughts, devotionals, and the latest events happening at our church. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. But today we're going to be starting a brand new book of the Bible. We're continuing in our series called The Greatest Story, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus. And in this series, we're exploring some of the major and minor stories and writings of the Bible, all the way from Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, to Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And we're still journeying through the books of the Old Testament. It's been a long journey. I think James said that it's been like three years and something that we started in Genesis. And so we started back in September 2018. Uh, We'll be starting our fourth year this September, going through meticulously, methodically through the Bible. And uh, one of the things that I've really loved about reading the Bible with you guys and exploring these stories is that we discover that there's this incredible love that is written in every page and story of the Bible. That the story of Jesus isn't just exclusive to the New Testament, that it is evident in every portion and every writing, and, and that the, really the character of love of God is there throughout the entirety of the Bible. And so today we're going to be starting in uh, uh, the book of Ezekiel. He is a prophet in, in uh, not Israel, but in Babylon, actually. And he is an Israelite, a, a from the tribe of Levi, who is in exile in Babylon. And so we find out, we're going to read this in a bit, but... We find out that Ezekiel was the son of Buzi from the line of Levi. He is a priest in the temple service of God, and so he would have been a priest that served in the temple of God. The book of Ezekiel kind of covers three major themes and movements. It's divided into three different sections. You could divide Ezekiel, and so the first section kind of covers judgment on Israel. It's the calling of Ezekiel and the judgment on Israel, the the captives in Babylon as well as the ones who haven't yet been taken into exile. The second portion is judgment on the nations, on the evil nations that have done wickedness around Israel. And the third is the future blessing for Israel that God has for his people. And so these themes really explore, uh, are explored through six different visions that Ezekiel receives over the span of about 22 years from the year 593 to 571 BC. And so this is actually before the temple of Jerusalem has been destroyed. And so we just finished Jeremiah, or, or no, Lamentations. We just finished Lamentations. And Lamentations was really grieving this, this temple destruction, grieving the exile. And so now we're back in Ezekiel. If, you're not, if you don't know, the Bible actually isn't entirely chronologically. It, it jumps around quite a bit through the different books. And so Ezekiel starts off before the temple is destroyed, before the book of Lamentations, before Jeremiah has this process of lamenting. And so uh, he was taken, uh, Ezekiel was taken sometime in 605 B.C., Uh, during the first wave of exiles that Babylon had conquered. Babylon conquered much of the land of Judah, and Jerusalem and the city and the town and the temple were one of the few last remnants that remained of of the conquest. And so we're going to take a look at Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. There's only two lessons for today. We'll be reading quite a few verses. We're reading all of verse 1, all of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and uh, and two verses in in chapter 3. But chapter 1, I think you guys will find this chapter quite interesting. I I really found it interesting. So uh, 1 verse 1 says this, In my 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. The very first vision we find of Ezekiel. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. 
The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kvar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. I looked, he said, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being. On the right side, each had the face of a lion. On the left side, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching that of the creature on either side, and each had two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed around them. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance of the structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions that the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. We're going to skip verse 21 because it's kind of a little repetitive there. And then it says, verse 22, spread out above the heads of the living creatures was, was, was what looked something like a vault. If anybody has their Bibles, does your version say something different than vault? Or is it just vault? The new, the, the, my new NIV says, says vault. What does it say? Yeah, verse 22. Something, it says, uh, spread out above the heads of the living creatures was, was something that looked like a expanse. Like a what? Awesome crystal? Cool. Awesome. <laughs> awesome crystal. Okay, let's do that. Let's do awesome crystal. Something like an awesome crystal. <laughs> uh, like an expanse, like a vault. Sparkling like a crystal, right? And awesome. Under the vault were their wings. There stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its bodies. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their, ring, their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault, above the expanse, above the awesome crystal, over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. And then it says this, above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. This is the glory of God, Ezekiel says. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. 
So Ezekiel receives a very interesting vision. If you follow along with the description, it's pretty peculiar. It's strange. There's, there's these weird-looking creatures with four faces, a human, an ox, a lion, an eagle. They have four wings, one reaching out, touching the other wings, two covering their bodies. And it says that they look like they're fiery bronze. I don't know if you guys have ever watched, uh, maybe not in real life, maybe you have, maybe on YouTube videos, you ever seen like metal heating up like in a furnace or like a, like a blacksmith's? Or if you weld, right, you might, you might know exactly what that looks like, right? Metal burning up with this brilliant brilliance and light glowing like radiant fire. And then he says, below them, below these creatures, as if it wasn't weird enough, there are, there are wheels, four wheels, and they intersect one another. So imagine a loop like this and then another loop like this, and they're intersecting wheels. And so he, then Ezekiel says they go forward and backward and left and right and up and down and in every direction they go. Wherever the spirit moves, they go. And then he says this, he says, these four living creatures, they're fiery creatures. They hold up what Ezekiel calls an expanse or a vault or depending on the version, an awesome crystal, right? And so it's interesting that Ezekiel describes it this way because the very word that Ezekiel uses is the same word that Genesis chapter one uses when God creates the expanse of the night sky, when God creates the vault of the skies above all the beauty and splendor of the night sky resplendent with stars uh, uh, shining and bright. It's the exact same word that Ezekiel is using. He's saying it's a huge area. It's as big as the night sky. It's as brilliant and beautiful as the night sky. And so he says, on this expanse is seated a throne of lapis lazuli with a figure of that of a man, a humanoid sitting on the throne. Now, lapis lazuli is, is a very deep blue, like a very, like, deep sea blue metamorphic rock. It's found in, in the mountains in the Middle East, often in Afghanistan. And, and this Latin lapis lazuli comes from the Persian name. And the Persian name actually means heaven stone, it means heaven stone. And so this, this vision of that of a man is sitting on a throne made out of heaven stone, made out of this beautiful blue metamorphic rock. And, and when the voice speaks, the voice thunders and it, and it sounds like rushing waters like that of a waterfall, like, like the marching of an army, of a large army, like thunder spreading across the night sky. It's this amazing experience that Ezekiel experiences, that he sees that, that he, he is there present for. And the entire vision occurs on the banks of the Kabar River in Babylon. Now, Ezekiel was out there, he was probably praying, meditating, maybe even mourning lost opportunities, mourning his exile, mourning what was going on in his life. And what, what really makes this vision interesting, aside from the four-faced creatures and the intersecting wheels with eyes all around them, and, and, and aside from the, the brilliance and, and all that other stuff, what makes it really intriguing is that all of this happens in Babylon. See, the figure of that of a man on the throne was none other than God himself. That's what Ezekiel says. He says, I see the glory of God. That's who it is. It's the glory of God present here. He says he falls face down and he begins to worship. And so the image of God on this throne is God's glory. The fullness of God is there, present. And in the days of Israel and Judah, the glory of God used to descend like this ball of light into the temple. 
It used to descend into the temple of Jerusalem, and it was present there during holy festivals. It was present there during holy days. It was present during the most holy of festivals, the Day of Atonement, where they cleansed the sanctuary. And it's the same glory that appeared before Moses on Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments. But the question here, what makes this vision really intriguing, is what is God's glory doing in Babylon? If this glory is meant to sit in the temple and meant to reside there, what is it doing in Babylon? Why was God's glory there of all places? In short, we're going to answer this and we're going to explore it in a bit. In short, God was, was in Babylon. God's glory was in Babylon because his people were there. So here's our first lesson for today. Our first lesson is God's glory goes with you. Now for us, this idea isn't really new. It's not strange. It's not problematic. You see, for us today, Christianity is a global religion. It extends to every corner of the earth. So the idea of, of God being with his people over all the nations, over the expanse of the earth, isn't really a stretch for us. It's not a problem. But for the ancient people, this was a brand new concept. This actually would have been problematic for Ezekiel. Because at this point in our story, the temple in Judah hasn't yet been destroyed. It's still standing. Jerusalem is the very last stronghold, the very last fortress holding out against the Babylonians. And you see, in this, in this system of the sanctuary, the mercy seat or the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was said to represent God's throne. God would sit there and judge and rule over all of Israel. And so the question then we ask again is if, the, if the, the, the temple in Jerusalem isn't destroyed yet, if the Ark of the Covenant is still there, if God's throne is still in Jerusalem, what is it doing all the way in Babylon? What is it doing there? You see, the people believed in, in local deities back then. In other words, the gods typically weren't universal for them. Uh, they, they were uh, not hedonistic, but... Uh, Oh, I forget, it's not, it's not polytheism, monotheism, it's uh, henotheism. Henotheism is the belief that all the gods exist, but that they typically reign in their different areas. And so every god might be worshipped and might be honored, but you would worship your own local deity, your own god, whatever your town worshipped. That's what the ancient people typically believed. And so they didn't believe in one singular correct religion or one singular correct set of beliefs. They believed all the gods exist somewhere out there in the universe, but you would worship your patron deity, you would dedicate yourself to them. The difference with the Israelites was that God was saying, well, actually, there are no other gods, it's just me, right? Uh, but for the most part, most people around that area would have believed that idea in local deities. And so, for example... The Babylonians, as they conquered Assyria, as they conquered Egypt, it's, it's not that their God was the only God. They believed their God had defeated the gods of the Assyrians. Their God had defeated the gods of the Egyptians. Their God was superior, right? And so as people expanded their nations and their boundaries, so too would the, would the nation and the rule and boundaries of their gods expand, right? Or, or another example is that the gods of specific attributes or domains could not affect other domains or attributes. So the God of the seas, for example, could not affect the God of the mountains. They had no power over the mountains because that's the mountain God's domain. Or the God of light had no power over the darkness because that's the darkness power's domain, whatever the case is, right? That's what they believed. And so God's presence or influence was usually restricted to boundaries and kingdoms. 
Again, they could be expanded through con conquest. Theoretically, especially if you escape the kingdom, you could also escape that God's influence. So we might find this, you find this in the Bible, the story of Jonah. Jonah, you talked about Jonah this morning, right? It's fortuitous. Jonah leaves Israel. He tries to sail literally as far as the boats will take him all the way to Tarshish, all the way to around Spain. He tried to leave as far as he could. Why? Because Jonah wanted to escape his God. If I leave Israel and I go as far away as possible, perhaps God won't see me, right? There's another story in the book of Kings. This Assyrian general by the name of Naaman. He's miraculously healed by, uh, by, by God through the prophet Elisha. And in the story, Naaman says, let me take as much dirt as two mules can carry. That's about a thousand pounds, something like that. He says, let me take as much dirt as they can carry back to Assyria so that I may worship Yahweh on this ground. Why couldn't he just worship Yahweh in Assyria? Well, he had to take the ground with him because the, the, the deity is tied to the ground, right? It's these ancient beliefs. So the very fact that God's presence was in Babylon was a very strange occurrence. It went against traditional and conventional beliefs. And so in this vision, Ezekiel sees God's throne seated on the expanse or on the vault. It's not seated in the temple. It's seated on the expanse on the vault, held up by these strange living creatures. And so the vision really shows Ezekiel that God's throne is not tied to the temple, but that rather God's throne is seated on top of the heavens. This means that God's throne sits over everything, not just the temple in Jerusalem, not just the nation of Judah, not just the territory of Israel. It seats over everything. And in the same way that the night sky covers all of the earth, so too God's throne is over everything. So the vision itself is a statement on the sovereignty or the sovereignty of Israel's God. Because God's throne is over the heavens, God can go with his people wherever the heavens sit above the earth. And so if the heavens sit everywhere, God goes everywhere. God can go anywhere and everywhere, God is not anchored to religious structures. God is not anchored to political borders. And even the vision of the wheels shows us this. The wheels travel in all directions, left and right and forward and back and up and down. They, they, they travel on the, on the horizontal axis, on the vertical axis, everywhere. They go everywhere because God's glory goes everywhere. It says wherever the spirit would go, there the wheels would go also. And so God travels with his people. And what I really love about this lesson, about this vision, is that it shows us that God is not restricted by, uh, by our parameters. God is not boxed in by our belief systems that we place, that we hold to. God is not restricted to those things. Wherever you find yourself, wherever you go, that's where God is. And so it's, it's wonderful because it's not just physical. God doesn't just physically go wherever you go. God, God goes wherever you go emotionally, spiritually. God is with you when you're at church, but also when, when you're at home. God is with you in your victories, but also your defeats. God is with you in your highs and also in your lows. God is with you in your joys and in your sorrows. God is with you when you're feeling right at home or when you're feeling like an exile in a foreign land, just like Ezekiel. God is with you when you feel him, when you feel his presence surrounding you, but God is also with you when you feel him absent and missing and distant. God is with you when you've done everything right, but he's also with you when you're stuck in sin and problems and defeat. 
See, the exact same way that God's presence isn't restricted by landmass, isn't restricted by political borders or boundaries, is the same way that God isn't restricted by your sinfulness. See, God goes wherever you go. And God is always there when you need him the most. And so if you're stuck in sin, that's when you need God the most. And if God is there when you need him the most, what makes you think God wouldn't be there when you're stuck in sin? When you're stuck in problems? When you're stuck in, in this cycle of abuse? When you're stuck in, in these cycles of addictions? God is present. He may not be orchestrating your suffering. He may not be approving of what you're going through, but he's there waiting hoping to bring you back in, hoping to bring you into restoration, hoping to bring you into, into healing and freedom. God's presence is there. And so a question that I want to ask you guys is this, how might your daily life change? How might every interaction change if you reminded yourself that in every moment, God was with you? How would your life change? How would it change when you realize that God is with you at work and when you're shopping for groceries and when you're getting cut off in traffic and when you're having a debate on Facebook? How would your life change if you realized that God was present, that God truly was there, that his glory was with you? How would you live differently? How would you give yourself grace? How would you give others grace? How would you be emboldened to love others better? You see, wherever you are, God's glory goes with you. So we're going to read verse 1, 1 again, chapter 1, verse 1 again, then we're going to jump to chapter 2. So chapter 1, verse 1 says this. Oh, sorry, I, I, didn't, I didn't do it in that order for you, Tyler, there, but you can jump back. Chapter 1, verse 1 says this. In my 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. My 30th year, the fourth month of the fifth day, he saw this vision. Chapter 2, verse 1. 2, verse 1 says this. He said to me, this is now God speaking to Ezekiel. He says, son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the spirit came into me and raised me to my feet and I heard him speaking to me. And he said, son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though their briars and thorns are all around you, and though you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or be terrified by them, though they are rebellious people. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious people. Open your mouth and, this is, and eat what I give you. And then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and in it was a scroll. He unrolled it before me, and on both sides of it were the written words of lament and mourning and woe, the written words of warning. Chapter 3, verse 1, And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you, eat this scroll, then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. 
So we learn here that God gives them this vision and he gives them this calling to go to preach to the Israelites. He says, consume this scroll, right? Have the words, the warning that God is placing before you. Have them in your mouth, in your heart. Consume them so that they're a part of you, so that you may speak, so that you may warn, so that you may, you may lead people back into relationship with me. And in chapter 1, verse 1, we learn that this vision takes place in Ezekiel's 30th year. He says, on my 30th year. And it's actually very likely that this very day was Ezekiel's 30th birthday. The 30th year of his life, on his birthday, he's out by the rivers of Kabar and he receives this vision. Now, Ezekiel was of the line of priests. He was a Levite. But a question we might ask is, what is a priest to do without a temple to serve in? What does he do? He has no temple to serve God. He's far away from home. What does he do? And so in Israel... From the time or from whenever a priest from the line of Levi turned 30 years old, they would then be appointed to serve as a priest in the temple of God. They had these little duties, they would be trained and they would do all this other stuff when they were younger. But once they turned 30, they now had the opportunity to fully serve on their own in the temple of God. This was a huge milestone for Ezekiel. Something that he would have been looking forward to all of his life. His entire life's purpose, his entire line genetically had led him to this point to know that he would be a priest in the service of the greatest God in all of the universe, serving there in the temple. And, and he's, a, he's about to do it. He knows it's coming. It's just five years away, but on the, on, on the 25th year, five years before he's committed, before he's ordained as this priest in the temple of, of, of Israel, the temple of Jerusalem, he is taken off into exile and he's taken by the Babylonians. And so at the age of 25, Ezekiel saw this dream that he'd had for all of his life ripped out of his hands, taken away from him, stripped as he's taken with other Judeans into exile. And it's actually very likely, if you read the story, that you see that Ezekiel was on this riverbank mourning, crying, the unfulfilled dreams of serving as a priest in the, in, in the temple of the living God. Can you imagine what it must feel like to have your entire life's purpose, your entire life's work, everything that you have worked hard for for 20 plus years ripped away from you. And then to have your birthday, the marker of the day that you would have served God, a reminder of your captivity, a reminder of what you've lost, a reminder of what you no longer have. You can imagine that his 30th birthday wasn't a cause for celebration, but rather a cause for mourning all of the hopes and the dreams that he had lost through the exile. You see, this wasn't just a job for Ezekiel. It wasn't just a job that he was clocking in, clocking out. It was his life's purpose. It was everything he wanted to do from the very bottom of his being, from the sole of his feet to the top of his head. Every fiber of his life was meant to do this one job, this one purpose, this one calling Every part of his existence was for this very reason, and it was gone. And so Ezekiel is on the banks of the river mourning the lost life's calling. But it's fitting that God steps in, that on this very day that he would have been confirmed as priest, he receives a vision from God. And in this vision, God appoints Ezekiel for another calling. He's not to be a priest, rather he's be to, to be a prophet, for all of Israel, to all the nations. So Ezekiel, he loses out on his life's purpose. He loses out on, on his life's calling, but he receives another. And here's our final lesson for today. Our final lesson is God is 
your calling. God is your calling. You see, God never leaves us without purpose. God created us to have purpose. The purpose of serving, the purpose of service of the kingdom of God, serving through mercy and justice and selfless love. And you see, that purpose can be fulfilled through different careers, through different seasons of life, through different opportunities, through different ways. That purpose can be served anywhere and everywhere. And Ezekiel thought that that his life has lost its purpose because he was so far from the temple, because he couldn't do the job that he was wanting to do. But God stepped in on that very day where Ezekiel's purpose would have begun, and he instead confirms to him another purpose. And he says, you have a purpose. You are going to be used for service. It won't be in the temple, but you will be used. See, Ezekiel's career plans didn't really pan out but God was still going to use him. You see, God's always at work within us. There is no circumstance, no failure, no defeat that could ever cause God to stop working within us. And here we find that Ezekiel is confirmed in his calling to serve God. It was not how he expected it to be. It was not how he hoped it would be, but his calling still remained. You see, we create our own plans, we create our own goals, we create our own visions, and anyone here who has lived even a life, a day in the life of this earth, knows that things don't always go according to plan. If you've lived on this earth, you know that things don't always pan out, that there are upsets and disappointments. And as much as you might plan things out, they don't always work out. But life doesn't always follow our carefully crafted trajectories. Life is complicated, life is messy, life is chaotic, and and often life is painful. And no matter how good or noble our aspirations may be, we aren't guaranteed fulfillment. See, Ezekiel's dream of serving God in the temple was noble. It was good. It was holy. It was in line with what God would have wanted, but it didn't pan out. Despite how holy and good and noble it was, it didn't work out. And so even though our plans seem to be with God, there is no guarantee that our plans will work out. But here's the beautiful thing. When our plans are to serve God, and even when those plans, that trajectory, that line doesn't work out, it doesn't mean that God has forgotten us. God honors our desire to do good. And when things don't work out for us, he often redirects us to honor that calling. See, you may have plans for your life. You may have had plans that have never worked out. And I know that you will have eventually plans that don't work out. But regardless of the setbacks that you may experience, God is still working within you. You see, your setbacks aren't failures. They're just opportunities for God to redirect you. You may lose what you believe is your calling, but God's calling over your life can never be lost. See, oftentimes we confuse our calling with profession, with a job, with a paycheck, but that's not our calling. See, God's calling over our lives can never be lost because God's calling over your life isn't going to be limited by careers, by finances, by resources, by circumstances, not even by the limits of your own imagination. God's calling isn't going to be just a thing or a place or an occupation. God is your calling. God is your calling. I want to invite the band to come on up as we begin to close here. 
You see, God's calling for you is to serve him by being love, by being mercy, by preaching justice and forgiveness, by leading others to the salvation that is found only in him. And you see, you can fulfill that calling regardless of what you do. Regardless of where you are, you can fulfill that calling whether you work for a Fortune 500 company or whether you're working for a fast food service. You can fulfill that calling whether you're employed or unemployed. You can fulfill that calling whether you're married or whether you're single. Whether you've got your life together or whether your life seems to be falling apart, you can still fulfill that calling because your calling and purpose isn't going to be tied to fleeting, material, worldly things, statuses, or positions. Your calling is rooted in the immortal, eternal, everlasting loving creator of the universe. See, God is your calling. And wherever you go, wherever you find yourself, God goes with you. God's glory goes with you. You see, God's throne is seated over the heavens. And so everything in all of existence is God's domain. He isn't confined by national borders or by the walls of our churches. God isn't stuck in a room. God is present everywhere that you go. And you see, Paul in the New Testament says that our hearts have become the temple of God, and so God lives within us. And it doesn't matter what you're going through in this life, whether you feel worthy of his grace or not, God is still with you. Whether you're in highs or lows, whether you're in victory or defeat, whether you're an outcast, exiled, far from everything you know, God is still present. God isn't concerned with buildings and structures. He's concerned with you with your heart. And so that means that God goes wherever your heart goes. God goes wherever you go. And you see, when life isn't going your way, when things don't go according to plan, don't worry because your purpose and calling isn't lost. It's not lost with a lost job. It's not lost with a missed opportunity. It's not lost with broken dreams because God is your calling. God is your calling. Broken dreams and unfulfilled expectations can't stop God from working in your life. Your setback isn't a reason to give up. Your setback is just a detour. It's just a redirection. It's just a reorientation. God can bring you into your purpose in many different ways. They don't always play out how we expect them to. They might not always go how we want them to. But if we're willing to trust in God, he'll bring us to the place we need to be. And see, if you read the rest of the story, if you read some of the things that Ezekiel does for the sake of reaching these exiles, you'll see that some of it's pretty strange, exuberant, uncomfortable. He lays naked on his side for a whole year. It's weird. But if you're willing to trust God, as weird and uncomfortable and unexpected as it might be, God will take you to the place where you need to be. It likely won't be naked on the side of the street, believe me. If you feel God's calling you, there's something's gone wrong. But God is calling you. And if you're willing to trust, God will take you where you need to be. The willingness to reshift our life's plans and to follow God wherever it comes or wherever it leads us to, that willingness in Ezekiel came from understanding that his purpose was to serve God. Even if it wasn't in the temple, he knew his purpose was to serve God. You see, temple service wasn't the end goal. That might have been Ezekiel's end goal, but that wasn't God's end goal. You see, it was just the means to the end. Our goal is to serve God, 
to live justice and mercy and compassion. Our purpose is to embody the will of God here on this earth, to live the selfless love of Jesus. Our purpose is to lead others to the salvation and the redemption that is found only in Jesus. That's our purpose. That's our calling. And when we realize that, that our calling is God, we realize that it doesn't matter how our life plays out. It doesn't matter how we we fail or how we experience setbacks or what unmet expectations we have. It doesn't matter because we realize that God is our calling. Even Even in successes and failures, God is there. God's still over us. When we realize that God is our calling, we are then free to live that calling in any and every form that it comes in. Amen.